The Rappaport Diamond Podcast is brought to you by Rappaport Academy, your e-learning course for successful diamond trading. Welcome to the Rappaport Diamond Podcast, the podcast that cuts away the surface to reveal the diamond industry within. And in an industry that is all about providing the clearest crystals, one critical piece remains largely opaque. It is a long-standing truism that the value of a diamond is based on the four C's. Carat weight, color, clarity, and cut. Understanding what these qualities are can be the difference between selling a masterpiece of nature or a more pedestrian trinket. These days, the industry has come to rely on grading labs to define the value of a stone. The challenges seem to be increasing, as new worries about fake synthetics and unethical labs crop up regularly. To deal with these challenges, labs are implementing new technologies, techniques, and strategies to keep up with the modern state of grading. But with so many human elements, can we really count on grading labs to get it right every time? Also, Avi Kravitz and Sonia Estrasultani just returned from trade shows in Europe, and will be telling us all about their experiences there. We will get a chance to discuss the glut of news about Warren Buffett that materialized over the past few weeks, and Martin Rappaport, chairman of the Rappaport Group, sat down with Avi to preview the subjects he will be talking about at this year's Rappaport JCK Las Vegas Breakfast. Pull out your loops, it's time to examine the industry. Carefully reviewing all of the facets is Rappaport's editorial team. Editor-in-chief Sonia Estrasultani just returned from Switzerland today. So, Sonia, in honor of the labs GIA, GCAL, IIDGR, EGL, AGL, and all the other lab acronyms out there, do you have a favorite acronym? Do I have to choose from the labs? No, no, anyone Am that I you going like. To, <laughs> I'm going to get, um, get into troubles again. I looked into my inbox, actually, when you told me we had to choose an acronym today, and um, I thought one of my favorite acronyms is um, BOF which is the business of fashion. But in French, both means, oh, meh, not so great. So actually, <laughs> it's one of my favorite publications, but the acronym in French, unfortunately, is uh, it's... Um, A bit buff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 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 Thanks, Joshua. <laughs> you described it well. So that's, that's my favorite acronym. Also here, Joshua Friedman, Rappaport's news reporter. Hi, Joshua. Good afternoon. We know you like puns, but do you like acronyms? Um, a little bit less, but um, I think my favorite three-letter acronym is TLA, which stands for three-letter acronym. <laughs> <laughs> did you make that up? No, I didn't make that up. <laughs> I wish I did. Kudos. And back from his many journeys, Rappaport's senior analyst, Avi Kravitz. Have you picked up any preferred acronyms on your sojourn in the wide world? Um, thank you, David. It's good to be back. Um, don't judge me, but um, I thought long and hard on this one, and I came up with LOL as my as my favorite. It's <laughs> my favorite because it's relatively new, but it's also kind of stood the test of time in in terms of who's using it. Um, you know, the older generation, I think, initially thought it was lots, uh, of, love, lots yeah. of love, yeah, <laughs> and 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 slowly that's creeped into my own uh, my own lingo that I'm, I'm using. Lol, more, more, and I don't know if I should be proud or ashamed of that fact. <laughs> you had you got stories about sort of, you know, aunt dies in her sleep. Lol, you know, failures of communication between generations. <laughs> when it's lots of love, it means something different. 
<laughs> that is true. <laughs> anyway, we're laughing out loud. It's good. <laughs> so as long as we can continue laughing while we cover these very important subjects, today we're talking about grading and the challenges presented by it. So grading is not a very old art form. In its modern incarnation, it's really only existed since the mid-1950s, uh, with the first GIA grading reports not released until 1955. Since then, standardization has become a major part of the diamond industry, and everybody knows about the four C's, and whenever you go into any jeweler, you always ask, you know, can you tell me about the four C's of these diamonds? You know, consumers and dealers and everybody uses the same terminology. So I guess the question is, how important are the four C's to the industry? Well, the, the industry runs according to the, the four C's. And, and I think when, uh, when people talk about the, the four C's in the industry, they also ref- sort of implying that there's a fifth C and that is confidence because what the grading labs bring to the, to the industry is um, a confidence in the, in the trade so that a consumer can be more informed about the diamond that they're buying and gives them a, a standard from which to work from in determining price, in determining quality, and in differentiating between different diamonds. No diamond is the same, they say. And so the, the four C's and the, the grading ideology behind it seeks to categorize diamonds, which helps on various levels. Sonia, do any of the C's stand out to you as being particularly important? Maybe one stands above the rest? I would say no. Um, I think if you're someone who's generally interested in the four C's, you will check every single one of them. You said something about um, the trade and consumers being both, you know, going to a diamond uh, jurors and asking for the four C's. I think I'm not entirely convinced that all consumers ask about the four C's. Very often they will see a ring, fall in love with it. I think there's also this dimension that they might like the fact that there's a certificate behind the diamond they buy because to have reinsurance that they're, they're spending them, their money for something that has real value, at least something that's certified and backed up. When we did a supplement a few months ago, we asked individuals that have nothing to do with the diamond industry, is the forces important to you? And they were women who all had received either diamond rings as engagement rings. Um, we asked people who live in New York, in London, and we, we had someone from Australia. And most of them said actually they, they wouldn't go for a ring because of his four C's grading. So I think that's also something quite important. I think it's very important for the trade to feel they have the certificate, but a lot of consumers, it seems like, you know, women that wouldn't go for a ring, first check the certificate and then say, oh, wow, I love this ring. They would say, I love this ring, and it has a certificate, if that makes sense. Well, I, I'm, I'm happy to hear that because I think um, one of the um, concerns in the trade is that we tend to um, get fixed on the four Cs. And when I speak to some of the older generation dealers, they speak about um, a loss of romance when you commoditize a diamond to the extent that you can categorize it according to those parameters instead of looking at the beauty of the diamond. So it's nice to hear that that consumers are not thinking in that um, in that box and, and looking at the the romance and beauty of the stone itself. And I think it's something we've discussed before, but I think consumers actually want to know the the line, the chain of you know where the diamond comes from. I think that's something that's becoming more and more important. So that's how they judge. A diamond, you know, I think it's something that we discussed in previous podcasts is actually to know where does the diamond come from is something that I think 
consumers care about more than, you know, the clarity, the cut. And and I think that's the fifth C that Avi was mentioning earlier. Well, there's a debate on what that fifth C should be, if it's confidence, compliance. You know, <laughs> you, you, the, Joshua will have a few suggestions, I'm sure, but the, the list goes on. But it's all connected to that same idea of um, of going beyond the four Cs to, uh, and it's what the four Cs represent rather than, you know, sticking to those boxes. So that fifth C is a very important one. We have seen in the industry that confidence is always an issue and we see that there are new techniques and tools being used to boost confidence in grading techniques. And so you see companies like Serin and IDGR creating machines now to help in the grading process. And Joshua, what have you seen out of the technology sector mm-hmm. in diamond grading? Yeah, I think um, good diamond grading is a little bit like a good home-baked cake because consistency is everything. And I think uh, one of the things that we hear people constantly complain about in the industry is that they'll take a diamond to one lab or even to one branch of a particular chain of labs and then they'll take it to another branch and they'll get different grades. So one of the things that technology-based and automated grading is doing potentially is um, is removing that inconsistency and ensuring that whether the diamond is being graded uh, in Antwerp or in New York or in Mumbai, the, uh, the diamond will get the same grade, which ultimately improves confidence for consumers, but also just for regular people in the industry. It would potentially remove a very large headache that we know and a lot of diamond traders suffer from at the moment. Do you know if there have been any challenges in integrating these machines with their human grading counterparts? Well, uh, Serene, who are one of the, as you mentioned, David, one of the companies alongside IRDGR and and the GAA and some others who have been um, pioneering this, they claim to have extremely high consistency and extremely high accuracy, and they, they claim that their machines are doing a better job than human gemologists do, and they claim to have evidence for that. We actually had um, Donald Palmieri on a, on a previous podcast. Donald Palmieri is uh, is the head of GCAL, as another as one of our acronyms, and he um, certainly has a, a bee in his bonnet about corruption in the industry. And I asked him whether automated grading would solve part of the problem of corruption in grading, and he said that automated grading is only as good as the person writing the code or the person managing the technology. And if there's faults there, then there'll be faults in the quality of the of the grading. So, Avi, do you think that the industry needs to start pushing further regulations and, and really looking into regulating grading machines? Well, I don't think we're at the stage of, of regulating the machines because grading is still predominantly a human um, subjective science, if you will. Um, the move towards automated grading is is relatively new and still in its um, early stages. Sarin is, as Joshua mentioned, is moving into the space, and my understanding is that um, that other companies um, such as De Beers, IDGR, and G and the GIA are working on similar capabilities. The big challenge is to automate um, clarity and color grading. Um, as we already have, you know, the size of the diamond is the size of the diamond and the cut is the cut. 
but it's not widespread enough to focus on regulation at this point. At the end of the day, I think it's uh, I think you you will always have that final human check after the automation um, that verifies the grade. So at the end of the day, grading remains a very human process. And part of the problem is that labs have a lot of mixed incentives uh, in terms of grading. So for the holder of a diamond, it's always better to get a grade that is better. It'll raise the value of their diamond. And yet the lab also needs to maintain its credibility. Sonia, what do you think the ethical challenges are around these mixed and conflicting incentives? They're massive because also we're in an industry that's not so big and people speak. I'm part of a group on Facebook called Drewers Helping Drewers. And the debates are raging when it comes to grading. So someone would say, what do you think of this lab? You know, what do you think of this lab? They, I'm not going to go into the, the details, but very often actually they have the hottest point of dispute for most of this. It's like the same lab in different countries might give different grading. And that's something that I think, you know, we need to, to go deeper into because that's actually the credibility of a lab. So, And people speak and people will bring, you know, different certificates, compare. And for jurors whose business and credibility relies on that, that's also something, you know, that, that, that affects them. We're talking about small independent jurors all over America that actually compare two labs reports and sometimes the, the discrepancy in color and cut and they actually discuss because it's a small group but it's still 12,000 people and they say, okay, this lab gave me this for this color but this lab gave me this and why? And then, you know, and it's how you, you build credibility and you actually get the industry to trust you as well. So I think that's a big issue. I'm not sure automated grading is the solution for this yet. But I think there's definitely maybe some adjustment that some labs could do on the international scale, but I don't know. Yeah, uh, part of the problem is also language. You know, if a grading lab is using the terminology that was um, set out by the GIA and that the GIA uses and, and it is, is fairly widely used, um, you know, using um, from a D color to Z then they need to apply the, the GIA's grading standards um, if they're going to use that terminology. Some of the labs have their own terminology that they've um, developed and, and use that, and so, and so they have a different um, grading system. But um, the problem comes when a lab might grade a diamond as a G color where, and uses that terminology G according to its standards, but, but really it should be a you know, K or better. Why hasn't automated grading taken hold of the industry in a really big way yet? I think, as Avi said, um, it's quite new still. And as Avi has also said, it's um, people have a preference for the human side of grading. But also, I think it's partly just the GIA has such a strong brand that, in the US at least, it's uh, the way that they have been doing it for decades has become accepted among consumers. Well, in a very traditional industry, we'll see how grading changes over the next few years. But I wanted to thank you all very much for uh, sharing your insights on it. And up next, we'll have an interview with Martin Rappaport, chairman of the Rappaport Group. Have you heard about the Rappaport Research Report? If you haven't, then you're missing out on the latest data report from the Rappaport team. Did you know that more than 80% of SI Clarity Diamonds in the 50-pointer category listed on RapNet in October 2017 sold within three months? Or that listings of 3-carat diamonds jumped 30% on average across all categories in Antwerp this February? With the Rappaport Research Report, 
you can get valuable and actionable data to make smart, savvy investments and start increasing your profit margins. Don't get left behind. Subscribe to the Rappaport Research Report today to get business intelligence for the diamond industry. Avi sat down with Martin Rappaport, chairman of the Rappaport Group, to discuss the upcoming Rappaport JCK Las Vegas Breakfast. Uh, Martin, thank you for joining us in what must be a busy time for everyone in the industry with the Vegas shows coming up. From your point of view, why are the shows in Las Vegas so important? It represents United States demand, which is the most consistent type of demand. We may get a jump up and down coming from China, which is very important, particularly for the smaller goods like 30s and 40s in the engagement ring market there. And then you've got the big show in Geneva this week. But America is America. It's the basis. It's the foundation of diamond demand. Now, the Vegas show isn't really a cash buying show like it used to be so much, but it's an opportunity to make the connections that are necessary to survive. I don't think any company, uh, like we talk a lot about the Indian companies being the 90% manufacturers of the world, you can't be manufacturing goods and not selling to America. Uh, the other thing is that America is going through Tremendous changes, uh, convulsions, if you wish, due to the way in which diamonds are distributed. Uh, the uh, You can call it the uh, Internet effect, or you might as well call it the Amazon effect. Uh, everyone is now in another space. And how are you going to position your products? Who are you going to sell to? Buying rough is one thing. Selling polished is another. And you can't have a viable polished selling operation without the United States, which means the Vegas show. Well, we've seen the diamond industry has a had a relatively good start to the year. So how do you assess the market going into the show? Are we in a good position? I think there's a big question mark about the stock market. We've seen a huge zoom in the stock market. Uh, you can call it the Trump bump. But the question is whether it's sustainable. And uh, the question now is going to be, will consumers, in fact, get some real benefit from the tax cuts? Uh, will the stock market remain as strong as it was? And what's going to happen with the attitudes of these millennials, these difficult, problematic, unworthy millennials? Well, have we not got used to millennials already? Is it not now Generation Z that, that we should be worried about? Nah, the Zs are still, still too young. Uh, the millennials are reaching their 30s. And at some stage, they may decide uh, to actually find a partner instead of spending all their time with, uh, what's that name of that? Uh, Tinder. Yeah, instead of tindering, they may want to start tendering. But uh, whatever the story is, the millennials are still the greatest challenge facing this industry due to the bulge in the population. And whether or not we can convince them that, number one, is that they should have commitments rather than relationships. And two, whether or not they want to celebrate that commitment with, say, a diamond. And I think that's really the issue. You lose the millennials, and you got a huge problem in the diamond industry. Okay, and uh, fr from a Rappaport perspective, many people will be coming to you, th to the Rappaport breakfast to hear you expand on many of those, those issues that you, that you mentioned in your annual State of the Diamond um, Industry Address. Um, this year, your focus is on the buy side. Um, without giving too much away, why did you choose this theme? Well, I think that uh, where you get your diamonds, the supply chain is the most important factor right now because garbage in, garbage out. If the diamond industry buys diamonds that are violating laws or uncomfortable or consumers don't want to buy, and we don't differentiate between the good and the bad, 
then I think the entire dime industry is at severe risk. So it's not just the buy side. It's how does one buy responsibly, effectively, and efficiently? How can someone buy and really get a fair price while also making sure that the products are worthy of the emotional commitment made by the customers? I think that jewelers uh, who are in the very busy with their customers need to gain a better understanding of the supply chain. Uh, they need to be very concerned about greenwashing. The idea that the Kimberly process solves the ethical problem of diamond sourcing is probably one of the biggest lies uh, in, the, uh, in the whole world. And, and In fact, I don't think that there's any bigger greenwashing operation than the Kimberly process. But the point here is, how can one buy diamonds at the right price responsibly? And that is a huge, chance, a huge challenge. Uh, the other issues, of course, of how to sell diamonds, I'm sure a lot of people at the show will be talking about. And I think one has to be careful about the De Beers and other efforts at some of these blockchains, which might actually be BS changed. Well, I was going to ask you about that because um, we've seen many, many new initiatives from De Beers, from IBM, from Everledger that are claiming to, to tackle this issue of, um, of ethical and responsible um, supply chains. So has the industry not come a long way in the last year or two in that regard? I think that the blockchain uh, is a technical device that enables you to track diamonds in a transparent manner. But that's it. It doesn't at all have anything to do with the diamonds going into it. So, for example, Zimbabwean diamonds are perfectly legal in India and perfectly illegal in the United States to OFAC. Is the blockchain or the BS chain uh, going to be able to accept those diamonds in there? Are we going to be all-inclusive the way we are now? I point out that India has absolutely no anti-money laundering or counter-terrorist funding laws regarding the importation of rough. Now, what about that polished? So we have serious issues in the supply chain, and the blockchain isn't going to solve the ethical and the legal and the compliance requirements. What it will do is, if we have a good control over the flow of diamonds into the supply chain, then the blockchain can testify or can provide evidence that things are done correctly. My concern is, serious concern is, the blockchain will be nothing more than a Kimberly process hype to try to say that diamonds are legitimate because of some technical thing called the blockchain. That is a lie. Simply not true. Okay, and I think that uh, many people don't understand the blockchain um, as well, so there are a lot of questions still out there about that and about that initiative. And then after the breakfast, after your, your address, there's also going to be two town hall meetings, one dealing with the ethical um, s uh, sourcing issue and the other on, um, on jewelry evaluation. It, it's essentially a discussion with appraisers. Firstly, tell us about a bit about the format in, uh, that you introduced uh, in the last two years of, of the town hall meeting and what that brings to the conversation. Well, the town hall meeting is designed to be highly interactive so that we're not just sitting there listening to someone talk. There's a lot of uh, conflict and discussion and different views being presented. And I think that's key to building the idea of buy-in and building the idea of getting the best ideas. We have to start thinking of the diamond industry as a community, as a team, not just people to be educated, but people to be listened to. Um, I believe that the new way in which the industry needs to move forward isn't necessarily by, you know, just a Rappaport breakfast, uh, but more so town hall meetings where people come together, discuss issues, share ideas, come up with new ways to confront problems. The um, issue of the um, 
social responsibility and where it should go and how we should maybe communicate to consumers the different various qualities of, uh, of social responsibility. There's fair trade. There's ethical. There's all kinds of ways in which we can communicate what it is we're doing and what is the status of the industry. Where are we standing today? Uh, how are we? Have we really gained in terms of our social responsibility? Are we meeting the needs of our millennial customers? What exactly are we doing to ensure that our products are doing what they should? As I always say, there's a reason that God gave diamonds to the poorest people in the world and made the richest people in the world desire them. This idea that we can fairly uh, use our wealth to help some of the poorest people in the world is tikkun olam. It means fixing the world, and this is very important. Regarding the appraiser conference, this is amazing because we're going to be talking about a standardization for the evaluation, not valuation, evaluation of jewelry. How can we describe a piece of jewelry in a consistent and honest manner? And this is something that we're working on uh, to create a appraiser community, a Rappaport appraiser community even, where consumers who look to recycle their jewelry will get a fair shake and honest information about the prices that they can sell their jewelry at and also to prepare the goods for online sales by honestly and accurately um, representing and documenting the specific quality of the jewelry. And that's a, that, that's a follow-on from the discussion we had last year. Um, so it'll be an interesting, um, interesting to see how people's um, perceptions and, and ideas have developed since then. And I think it's a very millennial way of approaching um, pro- approaching um, the the conversation because millennials don't like to be told what to do; they like to be part of the conversation and the story. Um, so I think these town hall meetings will be an indication also of of the involvement of a new generation in the in the industry, which is highly needed. Look, nothing can really happen unless the people in the front lines, and I mean this, I mean jewelers and appraisers, are part of the process of creating the policies, the procedures, and the decisions. So this isn't a Rappaport thing. This is a jewelry industry thing. This is something that is important for all of us, and therefore the ideas and the buy-in has to come from the community. Great. Well, th- uh, thank you, Martin. Is there anything else you want to um, preview before Vegas and, and invite uh, people to, to join us? Yeah. Um, first of all, I'm going to be in Vegas personally, along with, I think, some 24 members of the Rappaport Group. And we're here to understand that the diamond business is about people. And if the real estate business is location, 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 we used to say that the diamond business was about connections, connections, connections. But that's not true anymore. It's about relationships. I think it's important for all of us to communicate, get together. Uh, my email is rap at diamonds.net. If anybody wants to visit with me or spend a few minutes with me, I'm around and I'm open and I'm very eager to talk to everybody and, and share ideas. Great. And uh, we look forward to spending that, uh, that week with you. And we look forward to, to hearing your, your presentation on Sunday the 3rd of June at the South Seas Ballroom at um, at 8 a.m. bright and early. This podcast would not have been possible without the support of Rappaport Academy. Rappaport Academy launched just a few months ago, giving students the opportunity to learn all they need to know about the diamond industry. It's kind of like this podcast. But if the Rappaport Diamond Podcast has left you with a thirst for more knowledge about the diamond industry, Go to rapaportacademy.com and sign up for the Fundamentals of Diamond Trading, 
your e-learning course for successful diamond trading. So Avi, you've done a lot of traveling recently. You've been been going all around the world. And most recently, you were just in Antwerp at the Carrot Plus show. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like there? Sure, David. Um, there was a lot of anticipation for the European shows, um, both Carrot Plus and Gem Geneve. And um, we arrived in Antwerp, and the first thing that was very different was that it was um, there were blue skies and it was sunny, and it was really quite beautiful to be to be in a sunny European city for a change. It's not something you see very often in Antwerp. But um, the show it was the second uh, the second year that um, Carrot Plus took place. The show was very positive on the first day. The organizers invited um, Elizabeth Hurley, who was the guest of honor and opened the, who opened the show. And there were over over 2,000 um, people on the first day with a really, really positive atmosphere. And what's important about the Carrot Plus show, it was the first time that I attended the show, is that it really is an Antwerp event. And, and that's important because Antwerp has a communal atmosphere to it sometimes. And, and there was that sense of community that, uh, that I felt at Carrot Plus. Um, after the first day, visitor traffic and, and trading quietened down um, somewhat in the second and third days of the show. But overall, there was a feeling that exhibitors wanted to take part in it because they wanted to participate in an Antwerp event. And just so you know, uh, as far as Antwerp goes, it's, it was also the first time I've been in Antwerp for a few years, and I found a much healthier trade, a much more positive industry, and people felt um, felt a sense of optimism, and and that was really wonderful to see. The show itself was beautifully presented, the layout and and the venue was was really beautiful and really um, worthy of the diamonds that were on display. And as I said, that first day really created a buzz. But the question is is whether the sufficient trading took place uh, thereafter. And But overall, it, there was a positive atmosphere. It was a, a good event for Antwerp. You also delivered a keynote speech there, if I am not mistaken. How was that received? Well, the organizers arranged for a number of, of speakers. Um, I wasn't the only one. <laughs> But uh, I felt it was well received. Thank you, David. But there were there were other interesting speakers um, from the RJC, from the GIA, that overall gave a, an educational aspect to the industry. You'll have to ask other the audience how how my presentation we, was we received. We have to find a way to post Avi's <laughs> presentation because it was excellent. Uh, I listened. It was posted on the Twitter account of Carrot Plus. If people want to check, and I think we will find a way to put it on Diamonds.net because it was. A brilliant presentation covering the pipeline, covering a lot of the big issues our industry is facing and delivered in a, really in a very strong, presentable and uh, very clear, authoritative way. So well done, Evie. I think it was really good. I would really encourage anyone who's listening to this podcast to then go on Carrot Plus Twitter account and check it out. Thank you, Sonia. <laughs> Lol. <laughs> <laughs> LOL. <laughs> Lots of love. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a groupie a bit of Avi knows that, but it's an yeah, excellent it's presentation. Different. Thank you. If you're interested in seeing Avi's speech in full, you can find it on diamonds.net in the news section. Also recently returned from her travels to Switzerland is Sonia, who attended the new and chic Gem Genève show. So Sonia, how was Gem Genève? 
I'll start with um, a little anecdote. I arrived to the show on a Thursday morning, an hour after it opened, and I went to charge my mobile, as one does when your one has forgotten to charge before going. And I was sitting next to three traders, two dealers in diamond, looking at a ring, starting to trade, arguing the price, this, that, the cut. Actually, they were using maybe the full C's. <laughs> they, were, they were definitely using the full C's. Israeli dealers. And uh, they made a deal. So, so one went off and the two others were like, you know, calculating. Huh? And I said, wow, that's a great start. An hour after the show. And they said, this show is brilliant. Israeli diamond dealers being happy. So that was just, you know, that was that set the tone. But there's two people who told me the show is brilliant an hour after it started. And I walked the floor. I went to meet people that we knew already, people that I met at the show. There was such a good vibe. I think the organizers of Jam Geneva have achieved something that I hadn't seen in a long, long time to get the industry excited, proud, happy. The exhibitors were happy to be there as opposed to Basel World. I think that's what the organizers, Ronnie Tota and Thomas Ferber, wanted. They wanted to create an alternative to Basel World where the diamond people and the jewelry people are not treated with the same uh, ground exposure as the watch people. So they thought, let's do something in Geneva. They had modest goals when they started. They only wanted 40 exhibitors. They thought that would be great. And they had 147. Everyone backed the show. Everyone was happy. The exhibitors thought the exposure was great. The traffic was amazing. Thursday, Friday, Sunday was the last day of the show. Saturday, I didn't go, but I asked people after the show. They said I was as busy as the day before. And it's not so much how many people walk the aisles, which is very important for a trade show, but who's walking the aisle? And who was there? And um, people were there. We're talking Charles Taifouk. We're talking Richmond, Louis Vuitton, Chanel. All the big buyers of the big luxury houses actually came to Geneva. So that was that was really something I think the, the exhibitors, the organizers are very happy with. One of them told me it's a miracle. You know, we started with this dream and actually it happened. Great atmosphere throughout Great traffic, also like Carat Plus, beautifully designed, uh, very high-end show. And also it covered the whole industry. You could go there if you wanted diamond. You could go there if you wanted color gemstone, estate jewelry, young designer. There was um, a few talks. There was presentations. It was really well thought through. And I think it was a success because they time it with the auction houses. This week, we have the Magnificent Jewels sales at Sotheby's and Christie's Geneva. And I was organized, you know, to time with people coming to Geneva for the auction. So that was very clever of the organizers. Actually, it was the suggestion of François Curiel, chairman at Christie's. He told them, I think that's a fantastic idea, but make sure they times with our magnificent draw auction. And the two houses, both Sotheby's and Christie's, told me they benefited from it. They had more people coming to the preview than in previous years, quality people and also new buyers. So... It's actually a win-win for, for both the auction houses and Jem Genève. What was very touching when I interviewed the organizers yesterday, I think they couldn't believe how good the first year had been. Well, welcome back, Sonia. Thank you, David. Welcome back, Avi. And um, <laughs> bon voyage, because I understand the two of you are headed off to Las Vegas in a few short weeks. Yes, and we'll also give a presentation on the 31st of May, lunchtime at JCK. Um, yeah, and, can and, you can you and, sell it better, Avi? <laughs> that I'm just done. <laughs> I'm just letting you talk, Sonia. Um, 
But uh, Vegas is a different animal, of course. Um, it's it's so big and it's so um, it's an American atmosphere, and the American market is, as Martin mentioned, is is such an important market for the diamond industry. So while um, Carrot Plus and Gem Genève were were focused on the higher end, I think, and um, and kind of boutique European shows, we'll get a better idea of what's really happening in in the wider. Um, diamond market in 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 the coming weeks at uh, at the Vegas show, and uh, and yeah, as as Sonia mentioned, we'll be we'll be there and and presenting along with John, our publisher, and we're having a, a joint presentation between the three of us. So it'll be a, like a mini podcast, <laughs> um, but hopefully others will join in the conversation. By the end of the presentation, please. <laughs> <laughs> Not during the PowerPoint. <laughs> No PowerPoints, Sonia. <laughs> so, Joshua, you've been doing a lot of due diligence from here at home. And, you know, there's been a lot of news recently about a big name in the world, and especially in the industry, uh, Warren Buffett. Can you tell us a little bit about what's been going on with the buff? Um, yeah, his name has been appearing in our in our news reports quite a lot in the last few weeks. No real connection between the different stories, but um, his conglomerate, Berkshire Hathaway, owns a few jewellery companies, um, a manufacturer called Richline Group, which is quite well known, and um, a few retailers, uh, Hellsberg Diamonds, Benbridge and Borsheims. And Borsheims uh, got quite a lot of attention last week because in honour of the Berkshire Hathaway shareholders meeting, which is an annual event, where all investors in Buffett's company go and spend a weekend learning about the company. Borsheim stocked a 3.99 carat synthetic orangey pink diamond, um, which uh, the producer of the diamond called, I think, Alter, A-L-T-R, um, claimed was the largest pink synthetic diamond in the world. We often hear claims like that, so I haven't corroborated whether anyone else has produced a 3.991 carat pink synthetic diamond, but um, that's their claim. Uh, we also got um, Berkshire Hathaway's financial results for the first quarter and their um, their retail sales increased, which includes, as I mentioned, the um, those three jewellery retailers as well, as well as um, car businesses and other non-jewellery things. So check out diamonds.net if you're looking for more information about Warren Buffett and his activities in the diamond and jewelry industry. Thank you very much, Joshua. Your roundup of the news was excellent as always. Thank you. Thank you, Avi, for uh, adding insight and wisdom to the proceedings. Thank you, David. It was great to be here. And thank you, Sonia. The stories you shared from Geneva were truly magnifique. Merci, David. And I'm sure we all wish you safe travels to the United States, to Las Vegas, uh, where you will be able to meet your many fans and perhaps give out autographs to podcast listeners. But as you remember, I'm your groupie number one. <laughs> I think you're my only groupie, Sonia. <laughs> That's not true. Wait up to Vegas. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing stories of you. <laughs> what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, David. <laughs> Very good. All right. So thank you all for listening to the Rappaport Diamond Podcast. If you enjoyed this and are looking for more diamond and jewelry industry news and information, check out the recently released Rappaport Magazine May issue, 
which covers ethics and selling with a conscience. And if you're looking for an edge for your diamond trading business, check out the Rappaport Research Report, Business Intelligence for the Diamond Industry. If you missed the details, the Rappaport JCK Breakfast will be held Sunday, June 3rd at 8 a.m. in the South Seas Ballroom at the Mandalay Bay Convention Center. A link to register can be found in the podcast description. For Sonia, Avi, Joshua, and the whole Rappaport team, thanks for joining us. Thank you.